Welcome to Juilliard's Everything Arts Related in and around Austin. And today I'm having a conversation with Natasha Drina. She's a vocalist who's going to be performing this Saturday night with our Austin Symphony Orchestra in a tribute to Judy Garland. Natasha will be recreating some magic moments from a concert Judy Garland gave on April 23rd, 1961 at Carnegie Hall that is often referred to as the greatest night in show business history. Natasha, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm doing good, although Mercury is retrograde, and I don't know how you're handling it, but (laughs) (laughs) the struggle is real, am I right? I literally flew out of Savannah, and now a hurricane is coming there after I had just told a a high school friend who moved. I was like, we never get hurricanes. She's been there two weeks. I'm like, sorry, not there to help you. (laughs) That is it. That's totally it. That's the thing. I know, it is. Well, well done, Natasha, because you are safely in Austin, which is good because Mercury retrograde can wreak havoc with travel plans. And we've got the show coming up on Saturday with the Austin Symphony Orchestra, a tribute to Julie, Judy Garland. But before we get into that, I want to know all about you, Natasha. Where, <laughs> please tell us, did you grow up and what were you thinking was going to be your job when you were a grown-up? Oh, okay. Well, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in a town um, just outside of San Francisco called Pleasanton, California. And I know, I think I always thought I was going to be a singer. Um, my parents put me in piano lessons when I was, well, this isn't true. My sister started taking piano lessons at nine and um, quit after her first lesson. And I was four and a half and I just picked up her books and walked down the street to her piano teacher's house and started taking the piano lessons like my feet didn't even fit, hit the floor. Um, but then I was kind of bored with piano and I just kind of wanted to sing the songs. And my piano teacher realized I could just kind of repeat back melodies or anything she played that I already could do a little bit of sight singing um, at a young age. And so, um, yeah, she helped me find a voice teacher and I auditioned for my voice teacher by singing the song Over the Rainbow. Oh my gosh. So Judy yeah. was a part of your life from very early on. Well, yeah. So around eight, I didn't, I actually hadn't seen the Wizard of Oz or um, I didn't know really anything about Judy Garland, but my, my voice teacher, whose name was Marie Cochran, who's um, still in the same, in Pleasanton. And we talked uh, yesterday, actually. And um, she sent my mom and I off to buy the Judy Garland songbook because she had just made the assumption that I was a huge fan and um, taught me all those like younger year songs, like Zing with the Strings of My Heart or the Trolley Song, The Boy Next Door, um, which is for Meet Me in St. Louis. And also like Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas some of the great, great, great songs of her youth. Um, So yeah, that was how it all started. Wow. Oh my God. And did you ever, did you waver along the way? Like, you know, did you have support Mm. from your family? Did you feel like it was a struggle at times or that you really ought to be thinking about a career that some people would call more sensible? I have one parent that thinks I should do something more sensible and I have one parent that thinks that I should follow my dreams. And, um, that must've been interesting so, at dinner. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Still> it. Um, <laughs> we, um, 
No. Uh, yes. Okay. So I did a lot of theater and I did a lot of singing and competitions and they, I didn't have a typical stage parent type families, but, but if I said, Oh, I want to go do this singing competition in San Jose, then they would happily take me or I want to take these ballet classes on Saturday morning. They would happily um, take me and fit it into the budget and do the things that you need to do as parents. I'm a parent myself now. So I, I know what that looks like. And um, they were very supportive in that way. Um, but they were not musicians themselves and they don't really come from a long line of musicians. And um, yes, I worked in my mother's law office um, over the summers to make some money. And um, some of the attorneys there thought that I would make a very good lawyer. And I often say that it's so interesting. We're told to be kind of humble and not braggadocious as artists. If you're a good singer or a good piano player or violinist, you're encouraged to kind of keep that to yourself. And, but if you're good at being a lawyer or you're good as, I don't know, a mathematician or something, you're allowed to say like, I'm very good at this. It's more black and white. Mm -hmm. I guess it's subjective. It's more of a gray area. Right. And so it took a little bit of like a journey of self-discovery just to be able to say like, I think I'm good at this and I, and I think I can make a career happen out of this. And so after one very depressing year at home studying normal things, the, the parent that thinks I should be an artist um, kind of kicked me in the bottom and sent me off to New York. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. What they a were moment. Like, Go on your way, child. You seem depressed. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Because if you're sort of denying that part of yourself that makes you feel most alive, you're not serving yourself or anybody else, are you? Yeah. And their point was more like you can, you could be good at this other thing, but this is the thing that makes you happy. And I really see it and you should go and do that. You so. know, and there is this interesting, um, I think, line like between acting and and um, being a lawyer or litigator in particular, like oh, these sure. professions are on both sides of that line. And so I think people who are good at each of those things, it's like, yeah, OK, I could choose to do this and I could be good yeah. at it. But what is the thing that I'm meant for? Exactly. And it's um, it's interesting now that I have children of my own and seeing what I think that they would be good at. And it, it's interesting that you do start to repeat some cycles, right? Of, mm. um, wanting them to do certain things or kind of nudging them towards something. Um, and then I always have to kind of remind myself of, of the other parent that's like, what do you want to do? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I will say my 14 year old is in the choir department at the performing arts school where we live. So she's definitely got a little bit of um, the singing side of her. Nice. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's exciting. Well, and, and now you can do that in relationship very differently because like you have such a background to offer her. I know it is. It's fun. It's fun to watch her learn all the things and kind of relive some memories. So if you were talking to, let's say, a teenage vocalist that you didn't know and she was studying mm -hmm. uh, music and she she wanted to be on stage as her career, is there any kind of... Um, um, blanket advice you would want to share, or maybe the better way to ask this question is if you were talking to your younger self, what are some of those lessons you wish you had already learned that might've made it easier for you as you were progressing in your career? I wish that I had learned to trust my instincts and to trust my 
gut earlier. I knew how I wanted to sing and I knew how I wanted to, very similar to probably because I had followed Judy Garland for so long. There's like some back phrasing happening there. There's some, you know, she sings swing. And so I knew what I wanted to do to songs in my own way. But um, classical teachers and in school, they very much want to train you into a model that they believe books jobs. And it took it took until a friend, a mentor said to me at one point, like, you should expect that people would want to pay to hear you. And that was the first time someone had really given me the confidence to know that I was worth what they thought I'd be worth as a lawyer, if we're going to circle back to the previous question, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I just think I spent a lot of years trying to fit into this mold of what like the Broadway girl would look like. And I really wanted to be singing like in the 1950s with a big band. Like that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> nice. Right. I wanted to be Rosemary Clooney and her sister in the White Christmas. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I embrace like that at a dinner club where people were wearing nice outfits. Oh, yeah. The best things happen while you're dancing. I mean, come on. <laughs> the best things happen while you're dancing. Yes. Good one. Good one. Oh, my God. I'm all over that. Yeah. And so, I don't know. Were you told you need to tamp it down or you got to adjust this or you need to try to yeah, be more Yeah, kind that? of like you have to say exactly what's on the page or, you know, observe that quarter rest or, you know, there's not a crescendo there or, um, you know, just like they would be so in conservatories a lot of times, you know, very much so even like this is what you wear to an audition. You'd be better off if your hair looked like this. They have a very. Oh, wow. That's a lot of structure. It's a lot of structure. And, um, you know, I don't know that it's that great for a creative type. Yeah, I could see that that would that that would create more self-doubt, wouldn't it? Well, of course. And then you're thinking, okay, now I'm just in a line with like 20 other girls that look exactly like me. How am I possibly going to get the job over them? Yeah. You know, and I remember at one time singing After You've Gone, which is one of the songs in the show um, this weekend, at an audition um, for a guy who was one of my teachers in college, but I was auditioning for like a regional production of something I can't even remember. And I sang it and he was like, why is this not your job? You should just be singing these songs all the time. Like I could sit and watch you do this all day long. Um, So you're more than welcome to like be in the chorus of my show, but like I would rather produce and like write a show for just you doing this that you do. Oh, wow. That must have been a real light bulb moment. It was a real, it was a real light bulb moment. I'll tell you a funny um, story. He was the person that in college had told me that I probably wouldn't get work if I didn't extend my eyebrows out a little further. Oh, stop. Really? Hilarious that, you know, 12 years later, he's regardless of how I draw on my eyebrows, he was like, I'm ready to produce a full show of your fabulousness. (laughs) I was like, that's because I got away from you guys and your conservatory stuff. Oh, man. So how did you start bringing more of yourself into your art? I'm imagining it was a really gradual thing. It was a pretty gradual thing. So the first show I ever did about Judy Garland was called Beyond the Rainbow. And it was actually a recreation of the Carnegie Hall concert in which there was like four or five other actors and they kind of did these scenes, these flashback scenes of Judy Garland's life. And I just 
stood like on the center stage in a, in a thing, we called it the postage stamp of Carnegie Hall and sang the songs. And then they would kind of do a historical kind of type of reenactment, I guess. If oh, you cool. Um, yeah, it was cool. It was very cool. Um, and so, um, okay, so this, so I learned that I could sing like Judy Garland while I was in college from a, a piano coach there that knew her work very well. And I was doing some shows in the middle of America. And I ran into somebody from college and he introduced me to his friend and he said, this is Natasha Drina. If you close your eyes, she can sound exactly like Judy Garland. And I was like, well, that's not on my resume anymore. Oh. So I put it on my resume. I put it back on my resume. I never knew what to call it, like, because I'm not really like an impersonator. Um, and so, you know, I put it on my resume and I went to another audition. And the gentleman, um, the director, was not paying attention to me at all. I was singing night and day um, for an audition for something else. And he's just talking to his the person at the table the whole time. And I'm like, this guy is so rude. And then when I finished singing, he said, have you ever heard of this show beyond the rainbow? And I said, no. And he told me what it was. He says, I see on your resume that you sing like Judy Garland. I said, yes. He goes, well, I've seen your work all, you know, all over town and I've been wanting to work with you. So it's happening in Atlanta and I'm just going to tell them that you're my top choice. And um, so they auditioned all these women in Atlanta and then I flew down and we went like head to head for the role. And this is the guy who seemed like he wasn't paying attention to your audition. Yeah, no, I guess he was just excited that he found someone that could sing like Judy Garland. That like that he was reading my resume and I thought he was like, I don't know. Just that is rude. so wild. Okay, so then you go head to head. And yeah, that's wild. And you go head to head in Atlanta and you get the part, right? Yes, of course. Yes. So I sang one song and then the, the artistic director said, well, do you have anything else? And I said, well, I assume you want to hear Over the Rainbow. And so I did Over the Rainbow and he was like, he just walked me out on stage and he's like, can you feel this whole house? I sure can. So, yeah, I think, you know, sometimes on your path that um, opportunities present themselves so that you, you know, you're ready to take it to the next level. Yes. Yes. But maybe you also have to be like awake to them too, right? Because you could miss it. Oh, sure. Sure, sure. You could absolutely miss it. You could absolutely miss it. And this was, it was like 24 songs per show that I was singing. And sometimes we had two shows per day. So when he was asking, like, can you do this? I mean, that was sometimes with Encore, 50 songs. Wow. Wow. That sounds intense. Like what kind of, um, what kind of personal care rituals or vocal hygiene do you <laughs> subscribe to? Oh, my goodness. Well, I don't know if you've ever listened to the Carnegie Hall um, recording of Judy Garland where she says, like, I picked up a fungi in Atlanta, Georgia. And I literally, like, I wore a mask before people were wearing masks. The pollen there is so bad. And it was during the spring. And I would like go straight to the car and drive to my, the residence that they were having me stay. I did nothing. I lived life like a nun. I literally, I read a lot of books. Wow. Um, books about Judy, books about other things. There were no streaming services at that time in life. And so there, I don't even think there were not smartphones. Um, and you're yeah. walking around with a mask as if you're immunocompromised to protect your, your voice. <laughs> I, did. Right? I had childhood asthma. So I had, I had had to wear a mask as a kid. Very annoying. Um, when during allergy season. And so it wasn't like a big deal for me to yeah. just like throw on a, a mask to prevent the pollen, but your car would be like yellow. Mm. Like I would go out to my car and it would be covered in yellow pollen dust. 
and um, yeah, a lot of tea. I still vocalize daily, whether I'm going to sing or not, do some types of like warm. I mean, I think most musicians, I know not all singers um, do, but I think most um, professional musicians at least do th- through some scales or 30 minutes or so of playing each day. And what kind of tea is your favorite tea? Oh, my favorite tea is the passion tea from Starbucks with a lot of honey in it. It's like Ooh. a purple, uh, purple one. Oh, yeah. Okay. I love that because I think that, yeah, I get kind of tired. I'll have chamomile or peppermint or the other ones. But if I had my choice, that's the one I would pick. Yeah. And then do you do vocal rest periodically? Are you a believer in that? I am a believer in that. And I do, um, I, especially I had a time. So then I've done another play about Judy Garland three times called End of the Rainbow. And um, in that one, I speak like her also, which does not come naturally to my voice type. Mm. As just the singing is very easy for me to lock into and doesn't do much like wear or tear on my vocal cords. But unbeknownst to me, I had flown from New York to Atlanta to play the witch in Into the Woods. And I had bronchitis and sinusitis in both nostrils. Oh. Straight into rehearsals. And I just really like did a, a number on my vocal cords. And that's when I kind of learned to take a little bit of a, you know, a break or to warm down. I don't know if you're a singer, but that's something I tell kids all the time. It's like the process of warming down your vocal cords after your, um, after a big show or after really any show, it includes a lot of what they call straw work. And I, I tell people all the time, I, that's something else I tell my students. Like, I wish I had known this much earlier. It's just as important to like, when your vocal cords are inflamed like that to, you know, get them back to their normal size. That's interesting because that never, ever occurred to me. And, you know, you warm, you warm down a body after a workout in a way, you know, like you sort of, yeah. So why wouldn't you do it to your vocal cords? I've never heard anyone talk about that before. (laughs) Yeah. It's a big trend, I guess I would say on Broadway now, like the personal steamers and the warming down, especially when you're doing something like nine shows a week that you really, you know, if you're going to make it through the entire week that you need to be, um, you know, you can't just go out and be talking. And so it's very weird. If you pass me on the highway, I look like I'm blowing through a straw, like (laughs) on my way, on my drive home. Yeah. (laughs) And that's a way to like warm down the voice, the vocal cords. Yeah, like you were like you had a straw between your lips and like you were trying to blow air through the straw that helps your vocal cords get, you know, back to normal. And you're not actually making any sound or you are also? You're not making sound, but you are blowing air through. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I'm going to try that just for the sensation of it. Yeah, well, and we mentioned COVID. I mean, I've had a friend who lost her voice completely with COVID. And um, that's one of the things that her... um, the therapist, her speech therapist has given her to do to try to get her voice strengthened again, like after laryngitis. Oh, wow. Very interesting. Um, And especially someone like you who have been singing for, you know, I mean, what is it, 20 years? Is that right? Oh, no, it's like 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) You're very nice. I started when I was eight and I was uh, just saying to someone this morning, this is the time period that, um, so Judy Garland would have been 100 years old. Yes. Um, and, uh, but she passed away on June 22nd in, um, uh, 1969, 1968, 1969, 69, I think my brain is 1969. Yeah. So, um, she was 47 and a month, no, 47 and two weeks. And so this is the year that I hit 47 and was like, 
oh gosh, I'm at, by the time I get to the Austin Symphony, I'm going to be older than she ever was. Oh, that's wild. It's so weird because I'm like, I have an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old. And I do, I think about her kids. They were yeah. little. Joe was little. And she had so much life left. Oh, and she did. When you're little, you know, 47 seems kind of old. Well, sure. <laughs> because, you know, like when you're little, that's the oldest you've ever been. So you can't. Yes, yeah, right. You think, I know. Now I think, oh my gosh, what would. Exactly. I, I love that you're talking about like how young she was, like how much life she had left to live. And I think, feel like that's sort of one of the things that um, Renee Zellweger playing Judy helped bring to life for people was that how that she had young kids and that she, you know, yeah. She was just, she was just cut short, you know? She was. Yeah. And so it's remarkable that we have you to kind of help us hold dear all that she meant to us. And I want to talk about this special night on Saturday because you're really recreating an iconic night from 1961, right? Almost. I don't do all the songs in the exact same order. I do do her opening pair. Well, from the overture and then the first two songs are exactly the same. Um, but these arrangements were licensed to us from the Judy Garland Heirs Trust. And so um, that means that Liza and Lorna and Joe have like taken them out of the vault and allowed them to be um, checked over. A woman named Joan Ellison goes and, you know, she's making sure that they're all up to how they sounded on the recording. And um, yes, they've licensed them to us to use. So I'm not doing the exact order because I do kind of tell a little bit of a story of how I grew up falling in love with her and her voice and her career and the things that I've learned from her along the way. Um, and so I've, I've changed the order around to make the story flow better. Sure. Okay. But yeah. 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 Very similar. I've added the um, Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand duet into the show, which was actually done on the Judy Garland show, but it was one of the ones they allowed you to rent. And I just think, um, you know, who doesn't need a little uh, forget your troubles, come on, get happy Ugh. and happy days are here again. And a dear friend of mine who also was from Atlanta, we had done Les Mis together. She moved here during the pandemic and her voice is um, as crystal clear as Barbara Streisand's. So her name's Leslie Walden Belair. She'll be uh, joining me. And so, yeah, oh, a little fun. different, but a lot alike. <laughs> oh my God, that's so great. And how much trust you must feel for her children to, to, to be like, yeah, here they are. We're taking them out of the vault and there you go. And, and just honored to be able to do that. I know. I'm so, so, so excited. I can't, um, I can't wait to hear the Austin Symphony Orchestra play these arrangements. You know, <sighs> I've done it with smaller versions. I have sung with other symphonies, you know, a few songs here and there, but never just like a full evening of uh, celebrating Judy. So, yeah, it, I think it's going to be a very sexy night. This um, yeah. this Carnegie Hall concert that she gave back in 1961, I think it was in um, the month of April. Yes, it's April 23rd. April 23rd. It's been called the greatest night in show business history. I mean, that, oh. Oh, I know, right? It won four Grammys. The album won four Grammys. Um, and I did, I double checked it because it was actually 73 weeks on the Billboard charts, but like 10 to 13 weeks at number one. And then I recently learned that after the Renee Zellweger movie, it went back up to the top of the charts again for something like 20 weeks. Wow. People really rediscovered 
Um, it's so interesting. If you look at pictures, and I don't know if you've ever been to Carnegie Hall, yes. um, uh, but people are literally crowding the stage like, like a mosh pit. I mean, like they're not in their seats. And if you listen to the recording, you can hear the, like when she's getting towards the end and she's saying like, I don't have any songs left. We only, we have two more songs. Do you want to hear um, Chicago or after you've gone and the crowd goes wild at, for after you've gone. And then you hear a voice from the back say, sing them both, do them all. <laughs> um, and she's been there so long and she started late that night, which was not out of character, but she started late. And um, the, uh, so the people had been there waiting for like two hours. And uh, so she, she sings and she sings all these songs and then they get to the encore and or to after you've gone and then Chicago and then obviously at the end is over the rainbow and you can just hear she is so tired but she has just given them like every song the orchestra like had you know on their music stands and you can hear them shuffling their papers around because um, they don't know if she's going to do it either. Wow she left it all out on the stage and they did too. She, yeah yeah. Keeping up with her. Did. Yeah. And that was kind of Mort Lindsay, who was a lifelong piano player and arranger of hers. That was very much his idea to get her career going again. She was a little down on her luck at the time. And he said, what if, and she, every time she had done a, a concert prior, she brought like the costumes and the vaudeville look and dressed like a clown and um, did it very much as an act. And this was the first time she just comes out in like a simple black dress in the first set and she changes into her black cigarette pants in the second set. And she just is just her. And she's just this tiny five foot woman that captivates has an audience in the palm of her hand, I would say. Oh, God. Magical. You know, and I've never heard that audio, but um, I'm going to rectify that for sure. Oh, yes. It's crazy. But people are, I mean, one time she takes a break and she says, I have a little, I need to get a sip of water. And you hear a lady from the back just scream, I love you. <laughs> She's like, I love you too. And how wonderful that they, they, they released it like, like actually as it was, they didn't clean it up or anything. I know. And also how wonderful that who at Capitol Records thought, hey, let's record this just in case. What a smart person. Yeah. I mean, that was a genius move, actually, considering I how mean, much it's that was, It wasn't easy to record at those times. Oh, that's true. That's true. I don't even think about that. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it was like, I don't know, direct to vinyl. I don't know, I don't yeah. know how they did it back then. Yeah. Wow. I know. So we're so proud of our Austin Symphony Orchestra. We just, ah. we're, we're so lucky to have them and we're just so proud of everything that they do. And so I can understand that this tribute to Judy Garland on Saturday night is going to be extra special. You sound so much like Judy Garland. Like it's kind of crazy. There's a little clip. I don't know if you've seen it. That's up on the Austin Symphony Orchestra website. Where someone's playing oh, yeah. a little bit of you singing and in the background, somebody's going, oh, my God, she really sounds like Judy. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is that we tried to record that concert and there was somebody, we, it, you know, where life imitates art or whatever they um, that saying is that person, every recording I'm singing, the man that got away. And then it'll, it'll be like in the middle of the song and he'll go oh, my God, it's uncanny. <laughs> or I'm like, you literally talk during every 
song. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. It's a small snippet during every song that we recorded. But I kind um, of love that, though. Like, I it's kind of, funny. It's so authentic, you know? It is. It's funny. It makes it brings me joy. I mean, and the, that person I happen to know is also a piano player. And it, sometimes if you listen really hard, you can hear him complimenting my piano player. And so that's always nice to hear. Oh, cool. Too, that someone, you know thinks highly of someone playing the instrument that they know how to play. Yes. Well, I have so enjoyed our chat, Natasha. Oh, me too. Me too. Are you coming on Saturday? No pressure. I know everyone. Has- oh, I love that. No pressure. No. The truth is I'm super bummed. I'll be out of town. I'm going to miss it. Yeah, that's okay. But it's been a pleasure. Get your tickets for this Saturday, October 1st to see Natasha Drina performing live with your Austin Symphony Orchestra. Head over to austinsymphony.org and you can hear for yourself just how much she sounds like Judy Garland. If you want to hear more from Juliet, listen to Magic 95.5 weekday afternoons. She's on the air from noon to seven, keeping you company while you're at work or on that all too lengthy drive home.